Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kei te whakarongo mai koe ki tō tātou auhurihuri, ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. You're with our Changing World on Radio New Zealand National. And a wee reminder, you can stay in touch with what's happening on the show each week by subscribing to our email alert, which comes out every Wednesday. Just sign up on our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Now, did you know that New Plymouth has more green space in bushland than any other New Zealand city? This is why Kiri Cutting, a PhD student at Waikato University, is studying the city's parks. She hopes to tease apart differences in the ecology of sites that are left to regenerate, those that are restored and replanted with native plants, and remaining fragments of indigenous forest. Kiri takes Ruth Barron on a walk through her study sites. Well, it's a beautiful sunny day here in Taranaki, and I'm excited to be able to show you some of my research sites that I have for my PhD. Now, I'm a student out of the University of Waikato, but I'm really lucky because I get to do research both in Hamilton and in New Plymouth. And the reason for this is because I do urban research, and specifically, I study urban parks. So at the moment, we're having a little walk down a path here into a grove of trees, and I'm going to describe a little bit about my research. I have three different types of sites throughout city parks. One of them is a site that has trees that maybe have come in on their own or been planted in some way after the site has been degraded. So a lot of times, these are non-native trees. Now my other sites are of two types. One where there's been restoration, so planting of native trees, and one where we have an urban forest fragment that's been there for hundreds of years and never been degraded. And so having these three types of sites lets me explore and collect data on how these areas differ in cities and how we can take care of them better. We need to go up this little hill okay. here. Okay. Off the path. The site that we're visiting at the moment has a canopy of largely sycamore trees, or plane trees, some people call them. And these are not native to New Zealand. So that means that this site is one of my sites where there hasn't been any active restoration. There are a lot of weedy trees and weedy plants. And... Um, I want to take some measurements at this site and compare it with some of the other restored sites. And kind of just give, it gives me a benchmark of what would happen if we don't plant native trees um, and if we let our parks just kind of spontaneously become whatever they'll become. And in cities, this is really important to look at because there's a lot of disturbance from the communities around the parks. One of the things that I measure is the moisture of the soil. 
and this little device here is how I do that. And what this prongs? is, yeah, it's a little um, a block with two metal prongs that I poke into the ground like this, right at my flagging tape point. And I just make sure it's nice and snug into the ground there. And the uh, block is connected to a big long cord that goes to a device that I hold in my hand and I can turn on here. And the idea is to push a button on this device and it sends an electrical charge down the prongs into the ground and then it comes back up again to the block. And this lets me see what sort of conductivity is in the soil and that's really affected a lot by the water content. So, voila, we have a 41% or 40.7% reading of soil moisture. And that's quite moist. So I've had to take that reading at all of these sites in the two different cities heaps and heaps of times because um, it does differ so much. It may be that it rained the day before, maybe winter or summer. Um, some sites might be more well-drained than others. So, yeah, I take the measurement. I've taken it probably more than a hundred times at each site over an entire year. Other things that I measure are the leaf litter depth on the forest floor. So we were standing here and oh probably a good six or seven centimeters of leaves, mostly sycamore leaves or plane tree leaves. And leaf litter is what a lot of people just take for granted. I know even for me Leaf litter was, oh, you know, you go into a forest, you maybe have some crunchy leaves underfoot as you walk along under the trees, but you don't think much of it. Actually, leaf litter is immensely important in the life of a forest. And this is because leaf litter creates a little insulative blanket on the ground, on the soil. And this allows the native plants to generate, to regenerate. And so, Little seeds will drop into the leaf litter and then they will germinate over time and be protected by those leaves. And what we are finding and suspecting is that in sites where restoration plantings are very young and the sites are very open and the plants aren't very big yet, there's hardly any leaf litter, kind of like you would expect. And so regeneration of the native plants takes a little bit longer, we think, because there's nowhere, no nice little nursery, no little blanket of leaves for those seeds to germinate. And um, another thing that leaf litter is really great with is the ability to keep that soil moisture that I just measured and talked about before, keeps that soil nice and moist. What my study aims to do is to take all of these different variables, the soil moisture, the leaf litter depth, the air temperature and humidity, and other things and pull it all together into a modeling equation and mathematically relate these different variables to each other. And eventually this becomes applied when we can say things and make predictions about these sites that lets us manage them better. So when we allocate the city budget we can say, oh well we know that all of these restored sites are going to be between 10 and 15 years old, for instance. And that means we don't have to weed anymore because the canopy should be closing. New Plymouth is really a great place for this sort of study because it has some really beautiful, older, mature forest fragments. These are great places because you can just walk in to this forest fragment and you have a sense of just 
beauty and majesty. These old trees that have been left in peace are sitting there, and they're doing wonderful things for us as a city. It's been shown now that urban trees have so many benefits. Even if you put wildlife aside and you say, oh, I don't care about nature or I don't care about wildlife or birds, just for human beings, having urban trees is great because they clean our water and our air. They reduce noise pollution as well. They help to abate flooding in cities, which is a, you know quite a big concern. They just have these manifold benefits, even things like um, stress reduction. If you have an urban park near a neighborhood, people will use it a lot, and those people will often go to it for a sense of well-being and even of community. It's a place where people meet each other. Just in a selfish human way, these places are very important. So learning to take care of them better is important. This is called the Huatoki Walkway, which is one of the beautiful natural walkways present in New Plymouth. And there are two types of sites here. I have a restored site that's been planted about 40 years ago and a mature forest site. Okay, so up this little crest here, we can see one of my restored sites. And this site was planted about 40 years ago. And we're standing under a canopy of mostly totra but there are some tree ferns as well, some silver ferns, some mamaku. There are some rimu, a few other natives scattered here and there, some karamu. The canopy is almost completely full. Today is quite sunny, but under here, there's quite a bit of shade and there are some forest floor dwelling plants that are very shade tolerant, but Mostly we've got our biomass up in the canopy. We've got trees with nice big healthy trunks and big branches reaching up to the sun and competing for that sunlight so they can grow more. And it's quite cool down here as well. Yes, it's quite cool. That's a great observation. And not as many weeds here or not as much grass here as you would find in a younger restored site because that sunlight's not getting through. And actually... There's an interesting new addition to this site, this visit. There's a little tree fort <laughs> over there that wasn't there last time. So it looks like some children maybe have been here and constructed that little hut. And I think that's fantastic because um, it's really important for children to connect with nature for their development. Also for nature later when they care about it as adults because then they will be advocates for it. Here we are standing in New Zealand native bush that has not been too disturbed for being in a city. It has never been clear cut or had to be restored in any way. And we see towering tawa that has the sunlight kind of lighting up the golden leaves and the tops of them. There are tree ferns and really I think for me the overall impression is just green. Like you can just see plants have filled in every little area that they can, every little niche has a different plant that's adapted to live in that area. Like there are climbers, there's supplejack, you can see big tangled um, bunches of supplejack, and you can see Nico palms growing, which are very slow growers. They're the um, only New Zealand native palm. And you can see epiphytes. If you look up into the tops of the trees, oh, yes. you can see on the branches of the big tawa and other 
um, Koi Koi and big forest giants, uh, Astelia growing, which is a type of nest epiphyte. And some people know them as widow makers because when they get really wet and heavy and fall off of the tree, if they land on you, you're in trouble. <laughs> but when they're up in the tree, they're just marvelous to behold. And up there in the canopy, there's a whole other world happening that we know very little about. And that world of, of epiphytes and ca the canopy can only happen when a forest is mature. Now you're comparing New Plymouth to Hamilton? That's right. Why are you doing that? Well, the two cities are quite far apart in the spectrum of forest cover. Hamilton has about two and a half percent of its indigenous forest cover left, which isn't very much. And then out of all of the major New Zealand cities, New Plymouth is on the other end of the spectrum and it has about eight and a half percent of its indigenous forest cover left. And so this makes the two cities a really interesting comparison for my study because with patches of urban forest that you find scattered throughout cities, connectivity is really important. So how far can seeds of trees be moved by birds or by wind? Um, how far can weeds be moved, that sort of thing. And if there's um, connectivity, a little corridor of trees in between two parks or something, or if parks are bigger or closer together, like they are in New Plymouth, then that can change the dynamics a lot. And that can change the dynamics of our restoration attempts a lot. So that's where those the two cities come into play, kind of looking at these two data sets and saying, okay, right, where is there a threshold in how much cover you can have in a city that will help you in your restoration efforts or even hinder you because we've got the weeds to contend with as well. And they get moved around as people bike to and from work and, um, and as animals move seeds around and that sort of thing. The reason that I'm comparing restored city sites to these mature city sites is because cities in general, I don't think, will ever host park scenarios like we would find around Mount Taranaki or something like that. So we're not aiming to make big national parks in cities. That's not likely to happen. And that's okay. It's better to have some bush that's functioning and beautiful and native than nothing at all and giving up in cities. And particularly because nowadays many people never go to those big parks, those big national parks that are more far-flung. Many people, the extent of their exposure to nature is the park in their city a couple blocks away. And so to kind of keep that human nature connection, it's I think very important to have urban forest for that reason as well. One of the things that I've learned about these sites is that there's a very predictable um, curve, mathematical curve if you look on a graph, of canopy closure. What I mean by that is the extent to which as plants and young trees grow and get older and bigger, the crowns of those trees, the tops of them, close in and provide kind of a roof to the forest and that prevents sunlight from getting to the forest floor. And so I can see when I look at my graph of my New Plymouth sites that around 15 to 20 years we get some canopy closure. And so those branches have reached way up and the trees have gotten big enough and they've filled in so that the sunlight isn't streaming down to the forest floor. And this is an interesting um, 
thing for us to observe and actually have hard data on because it then lets us think about what's happening on the forest floor. Are we getting a lot of sunlight down there? Well, no, we're not. And weeds need a lot of sunlight in the forest. So it's meaning that naturally, once we've got that canopy closure, which is really important, we know that the weeds are going to be greatly lessened. And we don't have to go back as often to be weeding and monitoring. And that's really important in cities because that's where there are a lot of weeds. Weed seeds floating around and getting moved around. So they're the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why restoration plantings can fail or just take ages and ages to grow because those poor little native plantings are competing with all of these weeds that are just soaking up the sunlight. Another thing that I've learned is that the soil moisture, which is very crucial to plant growth, the soil moisture tends to be a lot greater the older that the site gets. We think that this could be just because the same dynamics of the sunlight not hitting the forest floor, not evaporating that precious water away from the soil, especially in the summer, because that the sunlight can just really desiccate an area very quickly. So we're learning that the soil moisture hits a point where it becomes quite consistent in older plantings. That was Kerry Cutting, a PhD student at Waikato University. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, you can find more stories on our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Matewa.